Botanica is thrilled to introduce Launchpack's GCSE, winner of the BETS Award 2021 for Best Classroom Aid for Learning, Teaching and Assessment. We know it can be challenging engaging different ability students in a lesson. The student's experience is improved by Launchpack's various differentiation tools, which meet the diverse range of student needs within a mixed ability classroom. Let us prove this to you by giving you a free trial access. Plus, all GA teachers get 10% off. Otherwise, sit back and enjoy this next JogPod with John. Hello there, welcome to another JogPod. Today I'm pleased to say I'm joined by Dr Simon Carr, who's Associate Professor and Programme Lead for the new BSc Geography degree at the University of Cumbria, based in Ambleside. Simon, you specialise in the study of landscape, geomorphology and climate change. It's a great pleasure to have you on JogPod. Fab, thank you very, very much for inviting me, John. I've been really looking forward to this. Hey, there can't be many better locations than Ambleside for a geographer who specialises in landscape, glaciation and climate change. What a perfect spot. You, you know, you can, well, you can see the smile on my face when we're talking here. Yeah, <laughs> but having, you know, having been a, a geographer, a geography lecturer for now, what, over 20 years, you know, when I, when I moved up, up to Cumbria in 2018 to set up this degree, it was just, you know, it's a dream come true, you know, as you say. I think I, when I first moved up, um, I was chatting with a colleague at the Field Studies Council up in Blancathra, and I think he said that he has 52 residential field courses coming from geography departments, geography and biology departments across the country, coming to stay in the Lake District. And, uh, and I was sitting there saying, yes, we just walk outside the door. It's great. You've talked about that, haven't you? Low Sweden Bridge. I, I really like that your, your court. You say it's your favourite teaching space. Absolutely, you know, I, I refer to it to, to, you know, to my students as, you know, they, they get very confused very early on because I say, okay, the next session is going to be in the Low Sweden Bridge Lecture Theatre. And, um, and you see, particularly the first year students in the first semester of the degree kind of going, uh, I can't see that on my timetable. Where is that? Um, and it, you know, it's a fabulous viewpoint. You just walk five minutes outside um, the main buildings in the, the Ambleside campus, just up a little track, and you've just got this fabulous it's a, a small sort of amphitheater shaped sort of grassy area where you can look north up to sort of the um the central and high fells so you can see the langdale uh, langdale pikes you can see fairfield you can see all of the the higher fells to the north in the, the borrowdale volcanics and then you can turn around look south and you've got the windermere basin and you've got the sandstones of the windermere supergroup that kind of create this much more subdued landscape and it's you just go there and you just say you know this is this is why we study geography. You know, you just just look look at what you can see out there in that environment. You know, but I think we spend so much time, certainly within a, a school context, and also I think within a degree context, focusing on what's happening in the classroom, what's happening in a book, what's happening in a paper that you're reading. But I think all too often we forget that sometimes we just need to go outside the door and have a look at what's what's in the world around us. You know, for me, geography is all about observation. It's all about you know using Using the Mark I eyeball, you know, the most sophisticated piece of geographic equipment we've, we've actually got at our, at our disposal. We've spoken in the past before, haven't we, about um, looking and seeing. And rather than being told, being asked, what do you notice first? Instead of being in a, a glacial landscape where somebody will say to you, this is a glacial valley. And look over there. There's an arete. It, it's about just a minute. Don't tell me what I see. Let me see what I see and explain it. Yeah, you know, I think, you know, it's you, you sort of, you know, that just what you've said there opens up so many different areas that are exciting about geography, but also the heart of some of the problems that geography and geographers face. Um, you know, we, we look at a landscape. A landscape is a phenomenally complex thing. You know, it's again, you know, in the Low Sweden Bridge Lecture Theatre, the first thing I ask my students to, to do when we go up there, say, just say what you see. You know, I'm of that era. I remember, you know, Roy Walker's um, catchphrase. Um, I think there's a new version of it on now. I don't know who presents it. But I always remember Roy Walker would sort of put up this image and go, just just say what you see. Say, you know, what can you see there? And, and it really, it always takes me aback that when you first do this with students coming to university, 
they're extremely risk averse. They don't stick their heads above the parapet and just you know say what they can actually see. They're expecting that they should see, oh, I can see that arete, I can see that drumlin, I can see that, you know, that particular piece of agriculture that's going on. You know, it's almost that the, the students need feel that they need to have the right answers straight away. And it's like, no, 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 no. Just tell me what's actually out there. What what is what are you picking up? What are you perceiving? in that landscape that you're viewing, because we've got this complex of the, the physical landscape, the biological landscape superimposed on that, and then superimposed on all of that, we've then got the cultural landscape. So there are multiple landscapes that we're seeing you know, with the, with the naked eye. And of course, depending on where you're coming from, what your background is, what your interests are, you're, everybody's going to see something slightly different. And that's what we need to capture within geography, because the, the discipline of geography is looking at this diversity of what's going on across the planet. And we're not all going to see the same things. And certainly if we're trying to classify a landscape, I've never seen, you know, living, living where I live, I've got some beautiful glacial geomorphology around me, but I've never seen what I would sort of call a textbook arete. OK, you, know, you could say that, you know, sharp edge on Blencathra or striding and swirl edge in, on Helvenen, a, a classic arete. But... Next time you get a chance, look in a textbook at a diagram of an arete and then try and find a photograph or use Google Earth to look at you know, striding edge. They look completely different. <laughs> and, you know, how, how can kids at school feel confident about describing a landscape when the examples they're looking at are kind of synthetic and you know, not really what we see? You're right. You don't know what they look like. It's like suggesting that a human face is exactly the same. We all look exactly the same and we don't at all, of course. No, you know, and I think it, it's, you know, some, you know a, a quote that I know my students start chucking about before too long within the degrees. I, I always sort of explain to them when we're out in the field, the world is a messy place. It's not this clean sort of set of features that you see, uh, you know, in a textbook. And, and that, you know, and then the other thing that you say is, you know, why do you think that photo has been put into a textbook? It's because it's a really, really clear example. And, you know, if we take, you know, if we take you know, a glacial landscape, which is a phenomenally complex and varied and really, really messy landscape to, to be looking at, whether you're looking at past or present glaciation, you very, very rarely see a textbook example of these sorts of features. And, and as a consequence, that means that the that mark one eyeball is so important to be able to start saying, well, what do I think I can see here? What, how would I describe it to start off with? Because irrespective of whether a feature is a, something that's easily sort of classified, if you can describe it, and if you can record that description in a, a clear, articulate way, whether it's a field sketch, whether it's some, you know, some bullet points and some notes or a combination of a, a variety of different things, that's the really important skill because afterwards then, you can sit there and reflect on well, what actually was that that I was looking at. You can start referring back to some of the literature that, that you may have available or, you know, starting to look at some some of the excellent resources that are there now on the web to say, well, you know, what sort of thing does this look like? What processes look like it, it made this particular feature? And, and I think we're really risk averse at getting students and teachers and professionals to just stand back and go, oh, not quite sure I can understand what I'm seeing here. I know, I'll just describe it first and then I'll work it out later as I go along. We talked uh, previously about Barbara Kennedy's work um, and I was struck by what she did with her undergraduate students where she took them through the stages of, of geographers who envisaged the landscapes in entirely different ways from us. So pre-glaciation, they had other explanations, which were entirely wrong, but considered correct at the time. And it, it, it's interesting to put that to students because it, and otherwise we face them always with the, the rightness of what they're seeing rather than, well, people got it wrong in the past. <laughs> let's, let's try and explain it for ourselves as we look at it. You know, you're talking to somebody who's built their career on making mistakes. So, you know, getting, getting things wrong is what, what scientists do. Um, you know, it's again, it, you know, it, it's one of those things that I've found through my career. And I remember I, I think I, I sent you a copy of one of my earliest papers, um, you know. And I remember sort of, gosh, 15 years later, reviewing a paper for a journal where um, somebody essentially disproved what I'd said. And and that's it's a very strange moment to sort of get to because you, you have to be a little bit sort of you have to step back a little and go, this is great. This is really good progress. Somebody has taken my work, 
has looked at it, has thought it was useful, has kind of considered what I've written there. They, on the base of that, have gone out and done some additional work. And brilliant, they've proven, they've demonstrated that I didn't quite get it right. And they're able to kind of incrementally develop the subject. And, and I, I think, again, that's something that we, we forget in right the way through education. We teach loads and loads of facts. We teach lots of things. This is a, this is what you can see. This is a, an arrest. It is formed by these processes. And again, it goes back to that, you know, the world being messy. Yes, in general, these things happen like that. But actually, there's so many different things going on that interact with one another. You know, I think you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be talking about geomorphology as a discipline in a minute. But, you know, geomorphology isn't just the physical processes that are operating in the landscape. It's the biological processes, the cultural processes. They're all kind of rolled into one another. You can't disentangle them. And so, you know, for me, it's a lot of it is about sort of going out and saying, OK, this is what I think I can see. This is what I think it means. Can you demonstrate? Can you can you explain maybe where where I'm not quite right? And and I think, again, within, you know, within this context that we've got, you know, this amazing technological development in things like remote sensing and environmental modeling and the computational power that we can apply to things like geospatial um, analysis using GIS, we sometimes forget that actually going out there into the real world, looking at the landscape, what you're doing there is you're seeing what is actually there and that you're describing that and codifying that in some sort some shape or form. So what we often see is, you know, if we get if we get students that are collecting data for a project, they'll often go, oh, my data doesn't fit. It's not right. I've obviously done it wrong. I said, no, 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 turn it around, turn that around. If you've used the method that we've talked about, if you've applied it in a way that you're confident you've been rigorous with, that you've collected the right sort of information, and that you've written it down and you've got it all noted down and codified in a way that is, is meaningful, that data is real. What that means is that the model doesn't fit the real world. And, and I think that's it's such a powerful thing to learn because it opens up this whole world of investigation and curiosity. There's all these new discoveries to be found out there just by going out and having a look at it. Yes, I've, I recognise that so much in some of my A-level students. Oh, I've got it wrong, sir. No, you haven't. You haven't. <laughs> but let's just try and explain it. The other thing that, that I know you talk about, and it's fascinating in the Lake District, I've, we've taken a lot of students with um, Worldwise through the GA and yeah. got them to stand either outside the Blencathra Field Centre or just on some of the walks. And I know you ask this question as well. Is this a natural landscape? Oh, you know, that that's that question, John, just opens up the whole can of what geography is. Um, you know, we, we have these ideas of nature, society, all of these different ideas and these concepts, these words that we often use without thinking about environment. We often use, you know, environment and habitats um, as, as these sorts of terms and without necessarily thinking about what they mean. And, and it goes back, you know, with the, the Lake District you notes, know, what a fabulous place to go and take a look at natural processes, except that most of those processes operating in the Lake District in the present day are not natural in origin. And, and it's this idea that, you know, I, I, you know how many students that, that we get joining us in Ambleside come here because, oh, I just want to come to this fabulous natural environment, you know, this really undisturbed environment. And you look at it, and I, you know, I've done a lot of work with the, the, the Lake District National Park Authority and some of the, the organisations which have got stewardship over the, over the national park. And they always say the same thing. They say, you know, it takes an awful lot of work to keep this place looking, for want of a better word, natural. Yeah, you know, almost the first thing that I do with with students when they start at Cumbria is we, we go up to um, Kirkston Pass. So it's a you know, fabulous route up into getting ac easy access to the fairly high fells and you can really see the upland environments around you. And then we walk down the catchment of Stock Gill and just basically takes us all the way down into Ambleside. And it's a fabulous day just to walk through this amazing landscape. And we can talk about the physical processes. We can talk about some of the geology that shapes them and created the, the overall structure of the Lake District and then start looking at the processes which have kind of created the, the landscape that we see in the present day. But then one thing that, that we often do partway through that walk is stop and say, OK, what is natural? And begin to start deconstructing 
this natural landscape until we recognise that pretty much everything that's happening in Stockgill is actually being shaped by anthropogenic processes or by the influence of humans on that wider environment. And you know, because of that, you know, one of the, the core concepts that I do a lot of teaching on within the, the geography degree at Cumbria is about this idea of the Anthropocene, the fact that actually the Earth system, as we have often taught about it at school, isn't actually functioning in the way that we maybe think it is that you know humans now have got sufficient power to be equal to or even more significant than some of the great kind of physical laws that drive how our earth system behaves and and i think you know when when you start especially when you're sitting in in the environment where you're looking out at this landscape and begin to talk through these concepts. You know, I always absolutely love that kind of gold, you know, the, the kind of the rabbit in the headlights sort of look of the students going, wow, I can't, I'm just completely looking at this in a different way. You know, it's, it's, it's really empowering, but I can also see for the students, it's one of these things that almost, it almost undermines everything they've learned at school level. Throw away the book, look at this landscape and tell me what you can see. <laughs> Yes, it's quite shocking, really, I think, for some of them. I, 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 I've had the same sorts of feelings with some of mine and the same, the same sorts of feelings from them about what are you telling me? Surely this is perfectly natural. Well, no, yeah. not quite. Um, you talked about the Anthropocene. And, and, well, I ought to say, first of all, I ought to say congratulations on your associate professorship before I ask this next question, because <laughs> that's, that, that's really good. Um, but... It sort of gets the Anthropocene tracks the academic journey that you've had because you started as a as a physical geographer, probably without ooh, I might be insulting you here, but probably without thinking too much about the Anthropocene at the beginning. Oh, absolutely. Um, yes, you know, it's uh, my my journey. You know, it's 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 one of the things that really made me think. You know, when I, I recently got that promotion, um, because when you get you know any sort of pro- professorial post you you become a professor in something or of something and you know one of the the key things I was sort of told when when I was promoted as well you know what do you want to be associate professor of uh, no, well no I, I see colleagues in in other universities oh, I'm an associate professor in environmental geochemistry of salt marshes well wow, that's that's pretty general that's 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 not not a, not at all a niche is it and I think actually that's Again, it comes back to one of the one of the challenges that I think geographers face. You know, we were talking about uh, Barbara Kennedy uh, earlier on. You know, I know Barbara Kennedy wrote a fabulous paper. Gosh, must be 20, 25 years ago. That was talking about you know, the problem of, of geography. That you know that physical geographers, classic physical geographers, suffered from science envy. That actually what they wanted to be was some sort of ologist. They wanted to be a scientist. They wanted to have that rigor within them. And that human geographers were social scientists in a different guise. Um, and they weren't quite as focused or specialist as a, a sociologist or a political scientist or an anthropologist. And I think that's a real shame because I think that's created this dipole in, in geography that, you know, you, you become defined as a human or as, as a physical geographer. And, you know, you're absolutely right, John. You know, I, I defaulted into physical geography. I, I liked, you know, I remember going on a, a field trip during my A-level um, many, many years ago to the Brecon Beacons. And I remember just standing at the, the head of Glyn Tatterall, where um, the, the A470 goes through the, the Breckens, and just looking at this landscape and going, I want to know how, how this has been made. And, and at that time, it was all about, well, what are the landscape forming processes that do it? So, you know, during my, my degree and then subsequently my PhD, I was very much on the, the physical end of the spectrum. Um, you know, looking at past glaciation, that was really my, my area of interest, was understanding the, the extent and the dynamics of former glaciers and ice sheets that had covered the British Isles. And I must admit, early on, I don't think I ever asked myself the question, why? Why am I looking at this? You know, for me, it was just the, the academic curiosity that, you know, I just wanted to know the answers. I want to know why this valley is here. And, you know, and I've spent, you know, a good chunk of my sort of postgraduate and postdoctoral career looking and working within glacial environments because they're phenomenally challenging environments. You know, they're, they're very complex. There's all sorts of different processes going on within them. They're extremely dynamic. 
But as a consequence of that, I used to take students um, out to Iceland regularly. You know, most summers I would go out for a kind of period of time to undertake my own research. But I'd also take students out to just embed them in this, you know, what is genuinely a natural landscape. Uh, or what, at the time I thought it was a natural landscape. Um, but going back to the same glacial forelands every year so mainly in southern Iceland some of the classic sites that you know a lot of A-level trips take uh, some students to some of these places but seeing the the rate and the nature of glacier retreats and glacier decline in Iceland over you know multiple years really brought it home to me just how significant the impact of climate change was and so over, you know, in the, the course of the, you know, the early noughties going up to about 2010, I started sort of really moving towards thinking about, well, how does, how does climate and climate change start influencing these big earth surface systems that are, are functioning? And beginning to answer those questions of, well, why does this matter? You start to put glasses in the context of, of modern climate change and you start opening this door of, human impact on the climate system you know the, all of what we talk about in terms of the greenhouse effect and you know anthropogenic um, global warming we look at that and then see that our glaciers at a global scale are the canaries in the coal mine of climate change the, the fact that you know they're thinning and retreating at unprecedented rates is being seen as kind of the smoking gun of the the impact of climate change and that kind of starts dragging you into these sort of deeper conversations that you start working with colleagues across the discipline and also between disciplines. And you start to think about, well, how else is that being sort of recognised within our kind of overall earth system, but also social and cultural systems? And we start recognising this, this deep, pervasive impact that humans are now having on the earth system. You know, my, my research in recent years has started looking a lot more at using techniques that I developed at, you know, in glacial environments to look at, you know, mud at a microscopic scale. I developed those into looking at coastal environments, wetlands and salt marshes and more recently peat bogs and now um, urban woodland to start looking at the, the detailed processes, the fundamental processes that are operating in the biological and the physical components of the Earth system and how our activities are really modifying and fundamentally changing some of those processes that we would have taken for granted as being natural sort of 10, 15, 20 years ago. Mm. So uh, yes, you know, I'm, 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 I now define myself as a, as a geographer. I'm an associate professor in geography because to me the value is actually understanding not just the the small subsets that individual people might do within a module or within part of a degree program, but actually understanding, stepping back and thinking about what's the whole of this, understanding the, you know, I used to think about it as kind of the social responsibility of science. You know, it's got to be evidence-based decision-making that takes place, but it's also about that relationship that we have with the planet, which, you know, as far as we know, is the only one that is really habitable for humans. It's the only one that we've got. And you, you hear people like Mike Berners-Lee talking about, you know, there's no planet B. We are pretty much stuck here. If, you know, but we don't have options. This has got to be the planet that is going to work for us. You know, we can jet off a few you know, billionaires off to Mars and they can sit in a miserable you know, <laughs> base on, on Mars thinking about, you know, how wonderful it is that they're up there. Um, but really, Earth is kind of the place that we belong. <laughs> I do remember walking up the Mare de Glace and thinking, blimey, there's, there are signs there where the, the, uh, the level of the ice had been. And within my lifetime, it's, it, it's almost unrecognisable. It, it is so far down. And there are trees that have grown yeah. in my lifetime on the sides where the, the, you look at the, the, the sign, it says this is, this is where the ice was. And even for me, uh, who taught physical geography, uh, it was quite a shocking moment. Yeah. And then... I've been, I've been lucky enough to go to um, to Peru a few times. One of my friends taught in Lima. Yeah. And uh, his house, if you go over his wall, he lives quite high up in the mountains. It's, it's a complete desert. It's a rock desert. His garden's beautiful, but it's a rock desert. And uh, Lima, I think, gets all its water from glacial meltwater. And I think you know, that that's a really nice example, John. You know, if you if you just step back from the immediate thing of saying looking at the processes that are taking place within your glacier, or the fact that it's retreating from climate change, you sit back and go, but hang on, 
the water that is stored in that glacier and in the annual snow snowpack that, that develops, that's actually the resource that sustains large proportions of the Earth's population. You know, I've got colleagues that work in the Karakoram Mountains in sort of Pakistan and, and Afghanistan. These are countries which have got hundreds of millions of people in terms of their population, and they are almost entirely dependent on this rapidly diminishing water resource for drinking water, for the water that's used for agriculture, for the water that basically moves pollutants and moves you know, contaminants away from areas of habitation. Now, water is such an essential part of everything that operates in terms of human systems, yet we often completely forget, where's that water coming from? Where's it being stored? We can bring it close to home. You look at a, a country like Switzerland. Um, Switzerland is also highly dependent on glacial meltwater and snowpack melt for all of the water supplies within there. Now you just step back and look at a map of Europe. Switzerland is in the heart of the continent. It's about as far away from major water sources as you can get in Europe. It's a fair distance from, from the, the, the Mediterranean. It's a long distance from the Atlantic. It's a long way from the Baltic and it's a long way from the Black Sea. So you've got to get that water into that area somehow. And so there's relatively little precipitation. I can't remember precisely what the average annual precipitation is in Switzerland, but it's pretty low. It's not far off from being the sort of conditions that 250 millimetres a year is what we would de define as a dryland. Mm. It's not far off that. Yet Switzerland has got lush green pastures that, you know, the milker cows provide us with, you know, good quality chocolate every year from, you know, without that glacial meltwater, a whole country becomes unsustainable. Um, you know, and that's a small microcosm of what's a much, much bigger issue across the planet. I didn't know that at all. You, you told me that um, when we spoke earlier on, and I, I hadn't at all picked up on that. And I walked down into Zermatt through that uh, the high-level route that takes you into the, the top of the, the village. I, it never occurred to me. I, that was a, quite a, a moment when you told me that. It, I, you... You are more concerned now about public engagement with this, aren't you? And, and making people much more aware of those links between climate change, the Anthropocene, but geomorphology as well. Yeah. Yes. You know, I think you know, it's it's often that question of, you know, we talk about this word geomorphology. We've used it quite a lot. And I wonder actually how many, how many of the students that we all teach actually know what that term really means. Um because you know, we teach we teach an awful lot of the the processes that shape the Earth's surface. That's actually you no. Know, but geomorphology can be defined as the study of the processes that shape the Earth. Um, if you you know those very rare people that actually have a classical education can come in geo Earth morph form ology the study of it. There we are. We can all be ologists. There we are. That's good. Um, but we often don't talk about it in that kind of broader contextual sense. You know, I know. You know, traditionally, geography used to be sort of considered as having you know, a number of core themes, you know, population, development, geomorphology, environmental change, biogeography. And, you know, you look at textbooks back in the kind of, you know, the, the, the 60s and 70s, that kind of golden flourishing of the discipline. And you see the, these terms being used an awful lot, but they've kind of fallen out of kind of common, common usage. And... As a consequence, I think we, we, we suffer a bit of an identity crisis because when we think, you know, once you've defined geomorphology, we often think of it as purely those physical processes that have taken place. But it's also now recognising within, within this sort of emergent sort of concept of the Anthropocene that geomorphology is also driven by us, whether it's the direct actions that we do. Now, it just, just again, just give you a, you know, a fact um, that you know, always blows people's minds away. Humans now move more sediment across the Earth's surface than all of the world's rivers combined. So in terms of the work that humans do in terms of shaping the planet, we are more significant than every single river put together. And you know, next time you're out walking around and you see your, your local stream or your local river, and especially if you see it in spate when it's in you know, flood conditions and it's going crazy, sit there and look at that and go, but humans are still doing far more than that river and all of its neighbours and brothers and family members could ever achieve. So we do a huge amount of direct reshaping of the earth. You know, again, I, I use in my teaching the, um, 
the example of the the coast of the, the United Arab Emirates, where you've got these you know the amazing structures that have been reclaimed from the sea. Um, you know, they're, they're phenomenal constructions. And but then we also have to think that beyond that, there's actually a much more pervasive but indirect way in which humans are now shaping our landscape. And the example I, I will often use when we take students to my favourite lecture theatre is we look at the, the catchment that we're, we're sat within, whether it's you know, the Scandell Beck or the Stockgill catchment around the campus. You look up and, and we can start talking about the physical process. OK, so what, what shapes this catchment? We've got tectonic processes and then we have denudation. And that denudation is being driven by predominantly water coming into the system. Water's falling either as rain or snow, and it's doing a number of things. It's either, you know, we could go back to you know, Robert Horton's classic sort of catchment hydrology, that water's got different ways of traveling through the catchment. And that's a great conceptual framework for understanding how catchment processes, the movement of water will shape a, an individual uh, valley system. But then we have to stop and look at that and say, well, Let's look at, okay, that rain that's falling or that snow that's falling, that's partly conditioned by the climatic conditions that are in that biggest global context. So there we are, one step straight away. The human impact on the climate system is fundamentally changing the way that water is being provided to a catchment. In places like the Lake District, what we're seeing is that although the, the amount of water that we get every year hasn't really changed since you know, records began, the way that waterfalls has changed considerably. There's far less snow, so there's far less storage of water on the mountaintops through the winter and the, the spring season. Also, that when we get rain events, we tend to get much more extreme events. So a lot more of that water is falling very rapidly in intense rainstorms. So straight away, we're changing the way that water is being added to our catchment. Then we add to that then, well, we've also changed the vegetation of our catchment through agriculture, through, you know, certainly in the Lake District, the uh, my least favourite animal, the uh, the Herdwick sheep, has, you know, eaten most of the, uh, the biological landscape already. And, you know, that means that we've, we've lost a huge chunk of the interception store within our catchment. So all that bio biological and biomass that is holding up water in leaves, in stems, in, you know, in all of the, the, the material that just holds up water in the pools, that's been removed, that's been changed. So suddenly we're adding a lot more water to our soil surface. Then also the fact that we're shaping the landscape through agriculture and particularly causing things like soil erosion, soil loss, we're losing that store of water that we would have in kind of a, what we sort of term as a medium timescale store. The soil water store is the one that we tend to use the most. So what that means is that we, we, we're getting more runoff taking place. We're getting much more activity within our streams. Our streams then are able to do a lot more work. They can erode and transport sediment. They can move water through the catchments quickly. Then we start regulating those rivers. You know, you go to almost every river in river system in the UK and you'll see that it's regulated. The, chan you know, the channel has been stabilised or it's been straightened or we've seen uh, weirs and little hydroelectric schemes being put in place, you know, ostensibly for good reasons. But all of these influence the way that that water moves. And that water then changes how it moves sediment through the, the catchment. When we start looking at how landscapes form, particularly within a, a river catchment, that river catchment is determined by how much water and how much sediment is available. That will influence the way that the channel will behave. It will influence the way that it will develop a floodplain. So just you know, within that, that single example, you can start recognising how we can't escape the fact that humans are absolutely fundamental to the shaping of our landscape. And that creates in us, first of all, an awareness that we're doing these things and that we, you know, we, we modify the landscape to suit our purposes. But it also, I think, encourages us to start thinking we should be working as stewards in this context. We need to be thinking about the consequences and the implications of all of those activities that we do and recognising, well, what can we do to, to change that? You know, what decisions do we make? And you know, certainly within the, the context of the, the Anthropocene, you know, this is a, a concept which was originally set up by Earth scientists, but has been really taken on board by human geographers to get us to think about how we imagine futures of the planet to be and so some people will, will refer to the Anthropocene as something that's been shaped by capitalism or it's been shaped by gender because it's generally a male construct um, but people may also think about it as well, what are the what are the future trajectories of the planet 
we've got you know eight billion and rising population. What questions should we be asking of, you know, well, what should our future planet be? Do we need to continue modifying it and geoengineering our Earth to better suit the population that needs to be sustained upon it? Do we recognise that we're going to have massive inequality, that there'll be a huge difference between, you know, the, the haves versus the have nots and that we're just going to have to accept that and all the social and cultural implications of that? Do we step back and say that you know, the, the technical, the economic, the social and cultural developments that we've had have created a huge problem for our planet? Should we step back from that and accept that we need to kind of allow the Earth system to kind of reassert its authority over us? Or do we have to acknowledge that you know, we're all going to die and that the Earth system will, will carry on as it wants to, but it just won't be able to sustain humans in the way that it has done for you know, the last couple of hundred thousand years? So you know, to me, it just it opens up. You know, when you think about geomorphology in the traditional sense, it feels like a very closed, narrow subject. But when you open it up in that sort of frame, to me, it becomes kind of at the heart of the global challenges that I think geography and geographers ex explore. They're fundamental questions, you know, it, about our absolute existence. You know, are we still going to still be alive uh, in, you know, in centuries to come? Then it comes into issues of inequality. What sort of society are we going to have? You know, we've got the, you know, the, the Millennium Development Goals, the UN's you know, Sustainable Development Goals. Well, how do we square economic and social development with the environmental degradation that comes associated with it? You know, in many ways, the concept of sustainable development is a complete oxymoron. Sustainable means kind of static. It means you know, maintaining things where they are. Development means something that's dynamic. How can we stick those two things together? So actually, you know, as I think Anthony Giddens talks about in terms of climate change, he says we should throw away the concepts of sustainable development. What we need to do is just talk about sustainability, full stop. And so to me, you know, this, this sort of discussion, it just opens up so many of the questions that are at the heart of geography. You know, as we said right at the start, John, you know, you just needed to wind me up and set me off. You know, I can just go talk about it. <laughs> it's no wonder, though, some students suffer from eco-anxiety. I talked to Kit Rackley about that and we discussed it at length because students will take on the enormity of it all and feel powerless if we're not careful as educators to help them look through that issue and the, the enormity of the wholeness of it. Yes, you know, and, you know, I, I know that one, you know, it's it's a, a very, very common emotive reaction that I get from students, you know, particularly when I take them to places like Iceland and we go to this amazing environment. You know, we, I've, I've started taking students from Cumbria to Iceland, well, certainly pre-COVID, um, and we go out there in the winter um, and it's ostensibly to see a true wilderness. But when we get out to, we actually go out to southeastern Iceland, it's quite a long way off the, the, the typical tourist track. But we start talking about there the the way in which Iceland dug itself out of the economic crisis of 2008 to 2010 by vastly expanding its tourist industry, using its natural capital, its natural resources, this amazing wilderness landscape to to increase tourism by you know, two orders of magnitude in you know a few years. And, you know, and what happened in Iceland after the, the financial crash was that they did what almost every other country failed to do. They, they jailed their bankers and they bailed out the public. And they basically used a sovereign fund, which they gave to every adult citizen of Iceland and, and said to them, use this to stimulate development of Iceland. And everybody set up their own local tourist companies, you know, adventure tours, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what it means is that, you know, Iceland has become a destination. A real destination, not just for kind of niche travellers, but, you know, the, the number of school trips that go out, the number of holidaymakers that go out every year, the tourist process out there is phenomenal. And that's increased the amount of stress on that very, very specific environment that people are going out there to look at. And at the end of that trip, I remember, you know, students will often look at it and go, that was amazing. But I'm also really depressed about what this means. And... And I, and I, you know, follow this with a, a course that I teach with my third year students, the almost the final module within their degree is a module which is on the science and politics of climate change, which is really trying to draw together all of these sorts of themes that we've been talking about. Start to say that, you know, we need to understand the science. We need to understand the physical processes of our climate system to understand the context of the decision making that we make and what the potential futures may be. And for the first eight weeks of that, that module, it's pretty 
pretty depressing stuff. You know, you get students to, you know, within the first couple of months, I'm actually going, oh, my God, this is awful. We have done dreadful things to our climate system. And there is absolutely no way that we're going to recover from this. And then in the final few weeks of the, the module, I sort of say, well, no, let's turn that around. What do we do as a consequence of this? And that's the question we should keep asking. And it's what, you know, it's something I, I really admire um, Greta Thunberg for her approach of just getting angry about climate, about really saying, no, it's one thing to feel hopeless about it, but humans have displayed right the way through our evolutionary and social history, the ability to adapt and the ability to face up to crises We've survived many crises before. We flourished as a consequence of crises in the past. And that human agency, you know, almost the thing that de defines the Anthropocene, human agency is what we need to sort of start drawing upon to say, right, we can do this. You know, within the, the context of climate change, you know, we, I remember, you know, when I first set up that, that particular module, it's probably about 10 years ago, the United Nations um, Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change had worked out how much it would cost for the world to solve climate change, to basically transition to zero, zero carbon. Because the irony about climate change is we know what the issue is. We also know what the solution is. We know how to solve the problem that's driven by anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions. We also have the technology that allows us to do that. The big stumbling block has always been, oh, but we can't possibly afford it. Now, the UN's estimate was that in 2013, it would cost about $36 trillion spent over the succeeding 30 years to solve that problem. So that's why these targets of becoming, you know, zero carbon by 2050 exist. It's this, this estimate that was made by the UN. And, you know, $36 trillion is a lot of money. That's about 10 times the annual gross national product of the UK and Ireland put together being spent so you think no but basically spending the uk economy every couple of years to solve climate change that's a lot of money but if we think at the the time that these discussions were happening we'd just come through the banking crisis where governments and the public through tax and through you know sovereign funds we invested 11 trillion dollars in two years to bail out the banks so, you know, the question that I always throw at my students is, OK, we know what to, we know what the problem is. We know what to do. We know how much it would have cost us. And, you know, we can we've demonstrated that the the world is capable of paying that amount of money to solve the problem. Why can't we solve it? Um, and at that point, you see a little switch begins yes. to come from the students and they stop feeling hopeless and many of them start doing what Greta Thunberg's done, start get, getting angry and start saying, this is ridiculous. Why aren't we doing something about this? And it's one of the, the most heartening things I've enjoyed about my career is hearing from students five, 10, 15 years on from graduation. And they're saying, ah, you know, but no, the last thing I do with the, my climate change budget, I get my students to write themselves a postcard. A postcard from the from the past that they basically write it to them, write it to their you know parents' home address, with the hope that essentially um, you know they, th this postcard will arrive. And I I keep them for about two or three years, and then post them out and say, right, do you remember? This is what you wrote to yourself. <laughs> and on that postcard, I get them to say, you know, what is it you've learned through your degree? What is it you've learned through particularly talking about climate change? What action? do you think you can take? And, you know, at the end of this climate change module, the students get full of ideas of what they can do. And I just sort of send them this little reminder and go, well, what did you do? And it's really, I found it really heartening, the number of people that have come back and said, well, actually, I said I'd never buy a car. And so far, I'm still doing everything by bike and public transport. Brilliant. That's part of the solution. And, you know, whilst they're all small individual things, each one of those interventions, each one of those changes makes a contribution to the bigger picture. And that if, you know, I, I would normally teach this module to 40 or 50 students. If each one of those 40 or 50 students talk to two or three other friends and influence maybe one of those people, suddenly you can see it mushrooming. And that's the way it's going to work. Our governments aren't going to sort out the challenges that we face 
as a function of the Anthropocene. But what what is going to solve it are our individual and collective actions that we did that we, we take. So so my message when we start talking about the whole kind of messy world that we're we're, we're ex- existing within and the way in which you know climate and the, the broader concept of the Anthropocene now impacts on us is that actually you can do something we can be hopeful for the future we've got this amazing ability to innovate our attitudes our behaviors to use technology we can do this and that we should be doing it and that's what geographers are out there to do is to explain why we need to do this how we can do it and what it will do at the end of it and to me that pulls together every possible wing of geography that you can think of that's brilliant you've, you've sold it to me now <laughs> <laughs> if I we want... get boris johnson to uh, to listen sometimes oh don't um, <laughs> i want to finish because i don't know whether this is you going full circle or, or what but your your phd was was looking at the last glaciation of the north sea basin yeah. and you looked at micro scale analysis of sediment then and um, your most recent work is again looking at sediments because you've got three papers on salt marshes. Yes. Uh, what took you from the glaciation of the North Sea Basin to salt marshes? Uh, what are you exploring? <laughs> I know when, when people look at my kind of list of papers, they go, wow, you're, you're confused, aren't you? You're not quite sure what you're doing. Um, and my response is normally, well, I'm a geographer, right? You know, it's, um, I, I want to look at the world. Um, yes, you know, and it, it does come full circle in many ways. That's, I suppose, the, the underlying theme in terms of what I've worked upon has been looking at, at sediments, looking at the, the way in which sediments reflect how a landscape is changing. And if you think sediment, mud, we don't think about it very often, but it's actually fundamental to civilization. You know, we're sitting in houses which are made of sediment. Um, you know, that we've got all of the infrastructure that keeps our world going is made of sediment. But that sediment is the outcome of geomorphology. Sediment is the, the material that's been eroded, transported, and then deposited by you know any form of earth surface process that takes place. And a lot of what classic physical geography, what classic geomorphology looks at, is well. How do we understand those processes on the basis of the archive that's preserved by sediments? And so within you know, my, uh, my early work on the North Sea, you know, we were taking you know, cores from the, the seabed and from below the seabed. So you'd get something that was you know, maybe two or three inches across and a, a column that was maybe a couple of metres long. That's not very much information to be able to try and understand the processes that created an ice sheet that covered the, the entire part of that basin. Um, so, you know, I had to work on and develop microscopic methods to, to understand those, those earth surface processes. And what that really starts doing um, over the last sort of 15, 20 years, what I started recognising is that the structure of those sediments fundamentally condition the behaviour of those sediments. So it's like thinking about well, what, what will drive um, a mass movement, what will drive you know, a, a, a landscape failure, a, a mass movement in some form? It's often it's the fact that the structural properties of the sediments are enhanced by you know, adding water in mo- most cases to weaken that sediment. And then it will fail in particular ways as a consequence of its structure. But then you can take that into a wider sphere. And um, you know, I've worked with some fabulous colleagues over the years and all of the universities I've worked in who kind of dragged me in different directions because the complexity of glacial environments is such that you have to learn some quite sophisticated techniques to understand them. Um, you know, glacial sediments are, I think it was Richard Foster Flint said, you know, glacial sediments are the, the most complex sediments on the planet because they've been formed through so many different possible mechanisms. And what that means is that the techniques that I was developing using, you know, these kind of geological thin sections, these slices of sediment that were, you know, impregnated with resin and then cut down to, you know, a, a few thousandth of a millimetre thick, so you could look at them under the microscope. And then more recently using x-rays to start imaging cores and sediments in, you know, in three dimensions. What those things allow us to do is to start understanding those structural components within a sediment and understand what the function means of them. So being dragged into salt marshes has been a, a, a real eye-opener, looking at, for example, you know, salt marshes are historically seen to be wasteland. Salt marshes have typically been drained and then 
farming farming has been sort of imposed on it. Not normally very good quality farming, because um, periodically it will flood. Um, you know, the, the, all sorts of horrible things can happen to it. Um, and in recent years, we've recognised actually that salt marshes are extremely valuable. They're free sea defences because in the context of climate change, salt marshes accrete through the transport of sediment into that near coastal margin and they accrete to keep up with sea level rise. So as a consequence, we've, we've had a, a sudden transition to recognise that salt marshes are extremely valuable components of the defences that we have against sea level rise. Again, coming back to that climate change driven set of processes but that some salt marshes work better than others. So we've had reclamation of salt marshes and there are, again, there are issues with trying to understand, well, why is it that some salt marshes seem to work really well and accrete sediment and they form lovely sort of rich biodiverse habitats and we get lots of species reintroductions within these areas, whereas others don't work very well at all. They just seem to sit there and just, just grow a little bit of grass and just don't do a great deal. They're not, serving any of the the ecosystem services that we think salt marshes will provide equally the other challenge for salt marsh is that in the context of climate change not only are we seeing sea level rise we're seeing increasing events of storm episodes where we get large-scale waves cutting in and, and trying to erode the lateral margins of coast of coastlines and what we've been looking at within some of my recent projects are that some salt marshes in the uk seem to be really stable that they over the last sort of 25 30 years they've experienced very very little lateral erosion whereas other salt marshes some that are up near me in Morecambe Bay have experienced phenomenal retreat and there's one uh, salt marsh that we've been looking at at Wharton uh, which is just outside Morecambe um, which has experienced 250 meters of coastal retreat in about a decade and of that retreat individual storm events like Storm Desmond in 2015 ate away 50 metres of that coastline wow. in a few days. And the questions that we have to ask ourselves is, well, why did that happen? And this is where the kind of the structural work comes in, because we can start looking using cores that we take from these salt marshes. We can start looking at the sediment, the sediment structure, but we can start looking at things like the pore networks. How are the, the pore spaces within those sediments allowing water and energy to dissipate into our salt marsh? How are the roots holding and binding together that, that sediment within there? And what we've recognised from uh, the Resist project, which is just, uh, just finishing now, is that the vegetation and the management of a salt marsh, so whether it's grazed or whether it's just left completely alone, fundamentally conditions how stable that salt marsh will be. And it, again, draws us back, you know, to almost going full circle in this discussion of saying that we can start looking at physical processes from a really, really specialist perspective. Now, there aren't many people that take x-rays of mud and look at them on a computer for, for weeks on end. Um, we can take those very specialist processes and start scaling it out, saying, well, this is important for coastal defence. This is also important for things like water quality, because salt marshes and these sort of sediments will trap pollutants. So, you know, one of the, um, the asides from the work that we were doing in the Resist project is I was looking at cores of salt marshes where vast amounts of lead, cadmium, iron from past industrial activity have been trapped and stored within these salt marshes, then locking them away. And that the, the erosion and the loss of some of these salt marshes is actually re-releasing these contaminants back into the environment again. There's, you know, all sorts of questions that come up. And it then comes up to the, the social issues of, well, you know, Wharton is a salt marsh where there's you know, a fairly large village behind it. What's the future for the people that live in that village? Because if this salt marsh is eroding at you know, tens, hundreds of metres within you know, a few years, you know, these people that are living in this area are going to see a fundamental change to their existence in the next coming years. Is there economic value in trying to defend and protect that area or do we have to start making those decisions of maybe we need to step back a little bit and go somewhere else and again it draws us back into the anthropocene all over again it's great i love it <laughs> <laughs> well i think that's a fascinating summary that's brought us right back to where we started actually which is what i think what you said um and possibly a good point to finish um is there anything i haven't asked you that, that I should. I, I know you've, you've been involved in Voices of Hope and UK Treescapes. There, 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 might, be, there might be some things to, to just finish off with there, I think, because it's, it's hope for young people. 
Yes, you know, I think actually the talking of, you know, we've, we've just literally this week, um, I'm part of a consortium that's been awarded a, you know, a very, very large scale project, you know, millions of pounds um, associated with a, a programme called the UK Treescapes. And this is a government funded programme that's trying to increase the, the planting of trees in the UK, because the UK is one of the most deforested countries in, in Europe. But also it's about getting people to value treescapes and tree environments and the, the project that I'm involved in is in many ways it kind of exemplifies you know the, the next step of the journey for me because uh, this is a, a project which is called you know, Voices of the Future, Voices of Hope, it's about collaborating and working with children and young people to start recognising and valuing the treescapes and their daily lived experiences. You know, 70% of the world's population live in urban environments, and that's only going to increase over the, the, the next coming decades. So whilst we can build, you know, and plant lots of forestry in upland areas, you know, lots of areas of Scotland, we've got large scale planting, quite a lot in Cumbria, that's all very remote from people. And that actually that within urban areas, there's a phenomenal amount of green space. Um, I don't know whether you've uh, had a, a conversation with Dan Raven Ellenson, who's been behind the, um, you know, the, the, the London City National Park. You know, but London itself has got something like five million trees. It's the largest urban woodland in the world. Um, but we don't recognise it. We don't value it. So the, the project that I'm, I'm involved with, with, you know, it's a, a number of colleagues at Manchester Metropolitan University, at Aberdeen, at Birmingham, Middlesex, is this transdisciplinary project gets children and young people to engage with trees and treescapes in urban settings. And this is particularly working with children and young people who have kind of been underrepresented in other discussions. So it's often uh, refugee families, migrants, those that are socially unlikely to be able to be mobile in the way that many others ha have been. So it's working in inner city areas, in, in, in certainly in Manchester, in the northern forest region, to look at, first of all, from the scientific perspective, how much carbon is actually being held in a tree in an urban environment, because most of the ecological studies that have been undertaken on trees and the sequestration of carbon have been undertaken in plantations and forestry areas in natural, sorry, we've come back to that word again, let's say rural environments. There's actually been very little been done in urban environments because a, a tree that's in, you know, on a, a street side or even in a park is fundamentally different in the way that it's working compared to a tree in a forest. You think your parks, you've got, got people that are often, you know, hoovering up the, the leaves and the, the litter layer that would normally form the, the, the humic layers of the soil. So we're fundamentally changing the behaviour of those trees. So what I'm doing within this project is, is working to understand the above ground carbon storage within trees, but then using my sort of x-ray CT work to understand for the first time the below ground carbon. Because again, something that a lot of people don't realise is that most of the carbon store of a woodland is actually in the soil that's underneath. You know, 60% or more is assumed to be the carbon that's underneath, but that's based on somebody, you know, licking their finger, sticking their finger in the air and thinking, mm, yeah, I think it's about 60%. We don't really know. So that's what I'm doing within that project, but it's a much, much wider project of saying that then what we're going to do is we're going to work with children to twin children in the project schools that we're working with, with local treescapes. So they start recognising the carbon that's in those trees and twinning it with their revolving carbon footprint. And because these are children that may not move away from the area that they live in for decades, they're going to see that evolution. And if we can partner them up, with their treescapes, suddenly they start valuing them a lot more. So, you know, this this particular project is fabulous because you know I'm you've got environmental scientists, geographers, ecologists, philosophers, educational workers. You know, there's a whole group of a really eclectic mix of people. And and again, you know, we've had some of the first project meetings, and the first thing I said to everybody is, "Hey, you're all geographers." even though they're coming from completely different environments. And, and we talk it through and everybody chuckles for a while. And then by the end of that first meeting, they went, yeah, I can see what you mean. Yeah, we are all geographers in this because we're, we're looking at this grand challenge and taking our specific expertise in some areas and showing how it can be taken to different audiences to engage people with hopeful change. Because if people start valuing what they see around them a lot more, just think what change that will start instigating in how people respond to, you know, the agenda to decarbonize. 
What a wonderful project. We must put the link into that um, in the with the rest of the material that goes with the yeah. with this podcast. That's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much, Simon. That's been a joy listening to you today. I've had a, I've had a great time. I'm, I'm glad you've enjoyed it, John. I, I, as you said, you just wound up the clockwork and let me let me start cracking up on it because it's it's I just love it. <laughs> Uh, and it's you know I think it's it's one of the things I I think we need to do so much more of within formal education is to really evangelize and inspire because you know I, you talk to you know I talk to students I talk to graduates I talk to children in, in schools what is it you remember about that education it's always about something really exciting that they would they learned from a teacher at some point in the past you know, we have such an, a key role in the development of future generations and I think sometimes we should just step back and celebrate that. I know within within schools, we're so driven by, you know, national curriculum and specifications and blah, blah, blah. Sometimes it's nice just to step back and go, wow, isn't this world such a wonderful, messy place? <laughs> yes, that's, that's so true. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> no problem, John. I've really enjoyed that. <laughs>